Rare MLB shows brought to you by SeatGeek, the best app for buying and selling tickets to sporting events, concerts, and more. For $20 off your first SeatGeek purchase on any game or sporting event, use promo code RINGERMLB. Download the SeatGeek app or go right to SeatGeek.com. This episode is also brought to you by Fielder's Choice Goods, featuring beautiful hand-cut wallets, card cases, and money clips made from vintage game-worn baseball gloves, which means that every product is one of a kind. And they're available just in time for Father's Day. For a limited time, get an exclusive offer of 10% off the entire Fielder's Choice Classics line when you go to fcgoods.com slash ringermlb. That's fcgoods.com slash ringermlb. Fielder's Choice Goods. The legacy is in the leather. My eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the pod. This is the Ringer MLB show. My name is Michael Bauman. I'm a staff writer at the Ringer, where we, as all Americans do, marvel at the majesty of Cal State Fullerton freshman Jumbo Jace Chamberlain and his mighty dingers. As always, the Ringer MLB show is proud to be part of the Ringer podcast network, home of the Ringer NBA show, where... I'm sorry, J.R. Smith seems to have dribbled away with the rest of my notes. Uh, So you can check out that as well as On Shuffle with host Micah Peters, our brand new music podcast, and also TheRinger.com where, oh, look, Ben Lindbergh wrote about Mike Trout again. Plus, we're kicking off our World Cup preview coverage. Check out Andrew Helms and Matt Pence on on their story on the years of dysfunction that led to the U.S. men's national team failing to qualify for the World Cup for the first time since 1986. But in the world of baseball, today we're going to talk to Roger Sherman, who is going to lend his college football expertise to discuss the Oakland A's shocking selection of Kyler Murray with the ninth overall pick in the draft. Ben Lindbergh's going to be on later to talk about Jake Arrieta's uh, colorful post-game analysis after uh, the, the Phillies got swept this weekend. But first, Zach Cram is here to talk about Clayton Kershaw and his latest injury. Zach, how are you? Hello. I'm glad you picked me first. Well, oh, there that's good. Have you been working on that? That's a I I came up with it on the spot, so I'm ready wow. to pod. That's fantastic. That's outstanding. You know what's not outstanding? Clayton Kershaw's body. It's breaking down. So Ben and I talked about this on the pod a couple of weeks ago and uh since Kershaw got hurt the first time, Kershaw has come back. He through with diminished velocity. He uh has returned to the disabled list. So tell me what's going on. So Clayton Kershaw missed approximately a month because of a left biceps injury. Uh, I believe it was tendonitis, the Dodgers said. And that was an unusual injury for him because in the past, all of his injuries have been concentrated in the back area, not in the arm. So in a sense, it was good that the back injury didn't recur. And then he came back. He made one start against the Phillies, pitched five innings in which his fastball averaged just 89 miles an hour, which is low even for... Kershaw in 2018, who had already been experiencing diminished velocity. And then he went back on the disabled list with another back strain. This is the fourth time in five seasons that he's suffered a back injury. The Dodgers say he'll probably miss a month at a minimum, which again is the fourth time in five seasons that he'll miss a month with a back injury. There's a pattern there and it's not pretty. And this is just an extension, like you said, of what you and Ben talked about a couple weeks ago, Kershaw seems mortal, at least in the regular season, for the first time in years. So there are a couple different 
tacks that we can go with this. There is the, so I guess we'll just take them one by one. The first is, what does this mean for the Dodgers this year? Now, the Dodgers, after the start they've had, after the injuries they suffered, uh, are only two games back of first place Arizona as we record this, which I, when I talked about it in the in my Power Rankings post last week, like I almost find it borderline offensive that the Dodgers are only two games out of first place after what they've after the first two months of the season they've had. They're so lucky to be within striking distance right now. Yeah, the Dodgers are 29 and 30. So even though they've been playing better recently, they're still under 500. And they've done a lot of that damage against, uh, you know, sub 500 uh, competition. For comparison, the Rays, who are 28 and 30, are just half a game worse than, than the Dodgers, but they're 12 games out of their division lead and 11 games back even of second place because the other teams in their division are so good. But after Arizona got off to such a hot start, they're terrible. Uh, over the last month and change, Colorado has a negative run differential. The Giants have a negative run differential. So the Dodgers, whose best hitter has been Matt Kemp and whose best pitcher has been Ross Stripling, are probably the division favorite at this point. You, you would have to think, right? Yeah, I mean, it's okay to be a game under 500 on June 5th if you're the Dodgers and your division is laid out in such a way that the Padres are only four and a half games out of first place. So... On one hand, it's good that have it's good for them that having sustained all these injuries are still in the race, but be- because they're not out of it, it almost feels like this Kershaw injury and the Rich Hill injury and the Kent Maeda injury and every yeah you know, they've got fourteen starting pitchers and all of them have been hurt at one point or another. Uh, it's it almost increases the impact of the injury because despite everything they've gone through, they're so close to first place. You forgot uh, the Hyunjin Ryu injury, which sounded like the most painful of all of them. So, right, four-fifths of their opening day starting rotation. I can only keep so many names (laughs) in my head. Four-fifths is on the disabled list right now. Their current rotation is Alex Wood, who, you know, he has a 4.4 ADRA, but is pitching better if you look at his peripherals. Walker Bueller, who's been great as a rookie, but... Will he run into an innings limit at some point, like that uh, Julio Urias had a couple years ago? Uh, Ross Stripling, who, again, was a member of the bullpen as recently as a month ago. And then after that, you have, what, Brock Stewart and maybe a bullpen game. They had Scott Alexander, who's a one-inning reliever, start last Friday night. So it's kind of a question at this point who is going to play for them. At some point, even as great as your depth is, you might run out of depth. And with maybe Maeda side, there isn't really a, a recent update on his injury. None of these rotation concerns are short-term. All of them are out for a month or more. Rich Hill has continued to have his blister problems. And really, though, Kershaw is the kind of pitcher where even if you have some sort of depth, losing Kershaw is irreplaceable at any level. If the Indians lost Corey Kluber, it'd be the same thing, even though they have a, you know some guys at AAA who can fill in. So that's a loss of several wins at a minimum. And it's probably the most impactful injury in the NL West, except, oh, wait, the Dodgers also lost Corey Seager, who is similarly irreplaceable. It's been a horrible season for the Dodgers injury-wise. But I guess with Kershaw, as you alluded to earlier, there are also longer-term concerns about his opt-out, his legacy as a Dodger. He's you know in his 30s now. There are a lot of issues there that he seemed so so unconquerable for so long and now it's just issue after issue piling up. And that's, I mean, well done reading my mind on this segue because that's where I wanted to go with this next is it 
it almost did seem inconceivable that he wouldn't opt out of the contract. And this is going to shock the listeners, but a lot of times when I ask you questions, I have opinions on them myself. I genuinely have no idea whether he's going to opt in or opt out and what the smart play is for him. So he currently has the option uh, after this season to either opt out of the Dodgers contract and become a free agent or remain with his deal, which has two years and $65 million remaining. If he were perfectly healthy, he'd certainly blow past that number. Uh, David Price got $200 million a couple years ago. Even Jake Arrieta, with a lot of concerns about his workload over the offseason, still got more than $65 million. So it's kind of a question of whether Kershaw's healthy. But, I, I mean, if he comes back in the second half and is Pete Kershaw, then he'll be fine. He'll get nine figures again. But if he isn't, even before he went on the disabled list, Ben wrote about this back in April, I think, Kershaw was experiencing his worst results in five seasons. He has his worst strikeout rate since 2013. He has his worst ERA since 2010, which is still great. It's 2.76, but that's not at the Max Scherzer level anymore of best pitcher in baseball. And, and I mean, and we're calling that the Max Scherzer level now. Exactly. I think Scherzer... You and Ben talked about this. I don't think Kershaw is the de facto number one pitcher in baseball anymore, even when he is healthy. And of course, the injuries might have contributed to his struggles, but that has to be baked into any contract that he signs at this point. And that does bring in the the broader question of the vaunted 2018 free agent class, which had been talked up for so many years, so many big market teams cleared payroll to attract these players. And you'll still have Machado and Harper at the top. We've talked about them at length because... Harper had a really great April before cooling off. Machado's been hot all season. But beyond them, Charlie Blackman signed an extension. A.J. Pollock's also hurt. Andrew Miller's also hurt. Josh Donaldson's also hurt. That's a lot of top-tier talent that is either struggling or hurt or both and could uh, could put a wrench in a lot of the plans that these teams have been preparing for years for 2018. So I want to back you up a little bit. Uh, you said if he comes back in after this back injury and is Pete Kershaw, what do you think the chances of that are? Do we have is he this low nineties uh, fastball, high two ERA guy, or do you think Kershaw of twenty fourteen is still in there? I don't know if the Kershaw of twenty fourteen is still in there over an extended period. I think he'll certainly have starts where he shows it. Even this season, he had a seven-inning game against the Diamondbacks where he struck out 12, didn't issue a single walk. He'll still be good for those. I just, I think I might need convincing at this point that version of Kershaw is still in there, which seems crazy to say he's still only 30 years old. But there's a lot of innings on his shoulder, on his back, and I don't think back problems go away easily is the issue in four times in five seasons, that's a lot. Do you think he's still in there? Because I think we might have passed the point of no return where I need convincing the other way now. Yeah, I th- I think that's that's right too. And the four times in five seasons, like this is a pattern. This is just something that's now baked in that Kershaw is a 27 start a year uh, guy instead of a 30 start a year guy, if that. So it's, I mean, it's just so... Uh, and again, I talked about this with Ben, but it's so foundational, like to as far back as 
what, 2010, 2011, Kershaw was the best pitcher in baseball, and that's just something that we took for granted. And now he's facing his mortality at, at 30. It's just it's a difficult thing to adjust to because I was going to ask you uh, what you thought what you thought he might get on the open market. And I don't that's such a tough question now, just with the the weird way the market played out last year. But I don't really know how to value him, even if I did know how to value free agents in general at this point. The question with Kershaw, too, is if he does opt out, he might have to show over you know July, August, September that he can succeed with lower fastball velocities. He certainly has the ability to do so. His off-speed and breaking pitches might be the best in the game. Uh, and guys who had lower baselines, like CC Sabathia has rebounded because he generates soft contact and he works around power hitters. Kershaw is working from such a high level that even a decline, like we said, is still a, an ERA in the twos. So that's still a $30 million a year pitcher. The question is, if you project out three years from now, is he still that guy when he's 33, 34? That's also the issue with someone like Josh Donaldson, who's entering free agency so late and has injury problems of his own. And not to twist this too much in another direction, but that is, like we've talked about, what makes Harper and Machado so special, that they're still in their mid-20s and have room, if not to improve, at least to maintain their current levels before declining. Front offices are smart now, and Kershaw, at his best, is the type of pitcher where you ignore aging curves to some extent, you ignore the war-per-dollar figures that get tossed around because he's so good. The question is, Will he be able to prove that and re-cement that legacy before October? I'm not sure. So this is what I really wanted to talk about. And this was originally we were going to have a little bit of draft discussion. The Dodgers drafted a pitcher, JT Ginn, a high schooler uh, out of Mississippi uh, uh, in the first round with the 30th overall pick. You got any draft thoughts? Any draft questions? I think you and Roger are going to talk about Kyler Murray, who is the most interesting prospect from yesterday's first round, at least from my major-centric viewpoint. But as someone who isn't as well-versed with the college and amateur prospects, you know, as, as I focus more on the professional season, is there someone who one of the maybe contenders picked who could come up and be a late-inning reliever this fall, a la Brandon Finnegan a couple of years ago, someone who we might see in the big leagues as soon as this season? Well, there was talk about the guy who went first overall, Casey Mize, being that kind of guy. Um, and he's he was the, the number one pick at a Auburn, just a super polished, uh, um, really incredible, great command, uh, great splitter, great slider. Um he could have been that guy if he had gone. There was talk about him going to um, uh, getting pushed down to the Phillies at three. And I think if that had happened, there was going to be an outside chance that he uh, got not only into the uh, um, not only into sorry, the uh, uh, the bullpen, but the rotation uh, with the Phillies. And I think just the, for the Tigers, there's no incentive to, to push him like that. So, you know, you look at, at some of these more polished college arms. I don't know if there's a real good lineup of, of need and fast moving reliever. And to be honest with you, I've been really bad at, uh, at projecting that. Like I thought Jacob Lindgren, um, I think he was with the Yankees at the time, got drafted, uh, in 2014. I thought he was going to go up in, in the same year, but that didn't happen. Um, 
uh, Zach Birdie with the with the White Sox. I thought he was a potential fast mover. That didn't happen. So you know, I don't know that we're you know we're in the fourth or fifth round right now as we record. I don't know. There might be a couple guys even who go this late who are just they they're maxed out. So I don't know what the uh, if there's going to be one of those guys this year. I mean, and guys like Finnegan are really they're very much the exception. So. Well, then I Sorry will non answer. <laughs> I will start caring about these prospects uh, next summer when I can talk about them as potential trade bait. So okay. uh, until then, maybe I'll focus on college baseball a little bit more next spring. I'm trying, man. I'm trying so hard, and you guys are making it so difficult. Like, give just give me a little bit. Like it's nothing but it's nothing but abuse that I'm taking in Slack every time I talk about, it, and I'm trying to bring it. You know, I'm I'm bringing people uh, updates about their alma maters, how well they're doing, and you know, Sharks is the only one who's expressed even a little bit of interest in this. So. I was I was watching the softball college World Series last night, so uh, maybe when baseball well, baseball heads to Omaha, I'll uh, tune in just the same. I mean, you know, University of Washington and WashU are not the same, right? I, I am aware. Uh, we are okay. different divisions. Okay. All right. Well, we'll talk to you next week, and uh, maybe some of these prospects will have reached the majors by then. Maybe Kershaw's back will be better. If not, we'll find something else to talk about. Enjoy the last, what, 35 rounds of this draft? I'm so excited. I Like I said, I've barely been paying attention. I've just been watching the names scroll. Have a good one. Thanks again to Zach for coming on. We'll be right back with Roger Sherman on Kyler Murray on the other side of this message from Burrow. Burrow has reinvented the luxury couch. From style to shipping, Burrow's put the time and thought into furniture buying so you don't have to. Customize your Burrow sofa to fit your personality by selecting the color, size, and armrest height that's perfect for you. It's super comfortable and adaptable. If your space changes, the modular design allows it to move and grow with you. Burrow assembles and disassembles in just minutes with no tools required. So when it comes time to move, Burrow gives you one less thing to worry about. With stain-resistant fabric and a built-in USB charger, Burrow has the durability and functionality to keep up with your hectic life. All Burrow furniture is shipped fast, and shipping is free. Enjoy 30 days of Cozy on your Burrow risk-free, or try out Burrow at one of their showrooms today. We recently upgraded to Burrow couches at the Ringer Studios, and there have been rave reviews all around. Now, for $75 off your order, $75, visit burrow.com slash MLB. That's B-U-R-R-O-W.com slash MLB for $75 off your purchase. You might not think that Roger Sherman would be uh, the guy we'd bring on to talk about the draft, uh, but something weird happened uh, with the ninth overall pick. The Oakland A's uh, took last night. One of your guys, Roger Kyler Murray quarterback university of Oklahoma. So what, what's going on? I, I want to preface this first of all, by saying that uh, I have never seen Kyler Murray play baseball. Is that okay? okay? Is that okay? Yeah, have you seen him play I, don't, baseball? I don't think any, I, I don't think anybody expects you to, I might've caught like in a bat or two here or there on TV. That's it. But it's this is a really weird situation for a lot of reasons, because, I mean, people knew that Kyler Murray is a is a great baseball prospect that's been known since high school, even though he didn't play at Texas A&M when he first started his college career there. But I think people expected him to be like a late first round, maybe second round pick. And for there to be mm-hmm. like because it wasn't, uh, you know, a super high pick for there to be sort of a, a dilemma there where the baseball team that drafted him sort of with a moderate pick 
was going to be able to offer him some moderate money. And, you know, he'd have to choose whether he wanted to play football or baseball. But instead, the Oakland A's come out of nowhere and are like, we are, we think this is a top 10, worth using a top 10 pick on a guy who may or may not play baseball for us immediately. Yeah. What's weird about this is he's, so let me just give you the, the full Kyler Murray. He was, I don't know, maybe a top 15 prospect when he came out of high school, shortstop. He's playing center field now. Everything that you would guess about him as a baseball player, uh, or everything that you would guess about him from watching him play football, that's the kind of player he is. He's a freak athlete. He's got a little bit of power. He's got tons of speed, but he opted out of the draft. He didn't take, the, I believe he, he skipped the mandatory drug test, which is one of the few ways that you can actually pull your name off the board. You don't declare for the for the MLB draft. Um, but And he went to A&M and played a little bit there, but not that much and transferred to Oklahoma where he was supposed to take over for Baker Mayfield. Played a little and, bit of football. Did not play baseball. Yes. No no baseball at A&M. He played a little bit uh, of baseball during his redshirt year last spring and uh, was not very good. Got about 50 plate appearances somewhere, uh, about 60 plate appearances um, and hit 122. Went to the Cape Cod League, where which is the, the top summer league for college prospects. Um, hit 170 there in 16 games and came out and... Played outfield pretty pretty much every day for Oklahoma this year and was pretty good. Hit 296, 398, uh, 556 in a pretty good but not awesome league, which is incredible because he, for hitter development, and this is why when I thought, I thought he was done as a baseball player when he didn't play at AM because those couple years of reps, like you can take years off as a pitcher and come back, but just the development that you miss by taking those couple years off is just it's so hard to replace um and so it's frankly a little bit surprising that he did that well at oklahoma um but i think that proves that the baseball skills are in there a little bit so he's an intriguing prospect as kind of a risky he's risky for a college position player but he's got upside because of that athleticism and the talent's still in there he just has a lot of ground to make up in terms of developing that he should have done when he was 18, 19, 20 years old. Maybe not the resume of a top 10 pick. Absolutely not. I think he's got the talent of a top 10 pick, but not not necessarily the resume. And I think if it would have been an interesting pick if the A's had set it up to, because this happens all the time, that teams will overdraft, even in the top 10, they will pick somebody who's maybe in the top 20 in terms of, of talent, and set aside bonus money uh, that was supposed to go to that pick and use it later in the draft because MLB teams have what amounts to a hard cap on on draft bonuses. And this is a way, you know, this, the Phillies drafted Mickey Moniak number one overall and used that money and signed with an underslot deal, spread it around uh, later in the draft. The Astros famously did the same thing cut a, in 2012, cut an underslot deal with um, with Carlos Correa. One gave a lot of, of Bonus money was supposed to go to him to Lance McCullers uh, later in the draft, and that worked out pretty well. So if that's what they were doing, then I think that's it's a savvy pick and a big bet on a scouting profile that just jumps off the just jumps off the field at you in terms of, of talent. Um, but they're letting him play football. And just to 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 go back to the bonus thing, I don't know what his bonus is going to be, but there have been talented 
or there were talented uh, high school pitchers, for instance. Kumar Rocker didn't go on day one. He was a guy who this time last year was a potential 1-1 guy. And they they drafted Jameson Hanna and Jeremy Ironman, both of whom are, pro- are college position players who I like, but are not the kind of guys that you would go out of your way to, to move bonus money around up top. So, so far, their draft strategy is not entirely clear to me. And now we can go to he's going to play football next year, which is outrageous. He, he it, you see, the thing about football is that very strong people try to attack you. I've heard this. Yeah, they try <laughs> to like, like drag your body down to the ground every time they can. And one of the things that sometimes happens is your goddamn body falls apart. And uh, the Oakland A's are apparently okay with him doing this. Now, now, something I was curious about, and maybe you can like tell me how this is going to go, is... Of course, there have been, you know, football, baseball players before. And whenever the draft comes up, it, it seems like they often use the other sport as like a, um, you know, sort of a, a leverage. You know, yeah. I want more money, you know, pay me if you don't want me to play football sort of situation. And it like, it seems ridiculous to me that an hour, like an hour after Kyler Murray got drafted way higher than anybody could have expected. Both him and the A's were both on board with it. Uh, he, he he was saying, I'm definitely playing football next year. The guys from the A's were saying, it's going to be fun to be an Oklahoma fan for 12 games next year, which is like, I, I feel like they're both kind of trying to bluff with each other. To But is, is that, is, are they too late for that now? No, I mean, they can, I mean, Kyle Murray can pull out a, Oklahoma football whenever he wants. I mean, yeah, the thing course. is, like, this would make a modicum of sense if the A's could wait to sign him until after football season, because that way they could have an idea of, like, if if he blows out his shoulder, for instance, uh, obviously he's not going to be the same player, uh, but they, they'd they be able to reduce their, uh, their bonus expenditure, but they've got to sign him um, by the first week of July. So this isn't, a situation where they can play wait and see. And like you said, like it to nobody's surprise, a lot of elite baseball talents are, or high school baseball players are also elite high school football players. So like Joe Maurer, for instance, if he didn't go first overall to the twins and didn't get the bonus he wanted, he was committed to play quarterback at Florida state. And there, you know, Jeff Samarja played uh, both baseball and football at Notre Dame. There are numerous examples, but it's been a while since, and, or, I mean, Russell Wilson, we talk about Russell Wilson's Yankees prospect, Russell game, Wilson, current yeah. Yankees prospect, Russell Wilson, 10 game stint in a ball or whatever the hell it was. Um, yeah, we talk about this every, you know, pretty, pretty much um, every offseason. But those guys weren't the kind of baseball talent that, that Murray was or Murray is. And those guys weren't. I mean, if they were much better NFL like, talents. They were much more yeah. likely to make the NFL. Kyler Murray, the other thing about this is he's committing to play football, even though there doesn't really seem like any chance that he will be an NFL quarterback. He's he's very short for an NFL quarterback. He is the fastest quarterback I've maybe ever seen. He's just a lightning bolt. Last year, he, he started the game against uh, West Virginia because Baker Mayfield grabbed his dick on national television. And first play of the game, he goes for 70 yards on a run and is just sprinting past these West Virginia defenders. The guy can fly and yeah. uh, presumably also hit baseballs. But 
it doesn't really seem like there's any NFL draft stock for him. Why would he risk his his you know moneymaker here, which is baseball, on this That's- last season of you know getting to play quarterback? And and he, it, I am excited about getting to see him play quarterback. But I'm like, take the money, take the money, don't get killed. And there's, I mean, there if. For someone as talented as Kyler Murray, there are legitimate reasons why he might go to the NFL versus Major League Baseball, but that's not what he's... He's just doing this for fun. And I, you know, God bless him if he, you know, gets gets to do what he wants. But professionally, I just don't see the upside for anybody except for Lincoln Riley and the Oklahoma Sooners. It's, it's very strange. It, like, there are so many parts of this. I just... I think you're probably onto something in that they're hoping that his football career allows them to under underpay his slot. Um, Cause that's the only real explanation that makes sense. Why else would you draft this guy so high, you know, when there's no real certainty about his future and, and mm-hmm. even his, his like background is not nearly enough to justify that type of pick. It's, and that's the he, only explanation that that really makes sense to me. And it's kind of a cynical and crappy explanation, but it, it's also sort of opportunistic in an interesting way from them that I that I do sort of appreciate, even as someone who just wants to watch college football. And, you know, when when I talk about them underpaying a slot bonus, it's not that the A's aren't going to spend that money on some draftee. It's just yeah. they've they've only got they've got a, a limited amount. So this isn't not, you know, you could be forgiven for assuming this, uh, given the way the A's have spent on their big league club over the past couple of years. But uh, they're going to spend this money somewhere. And just even without the football complication, he is he's not the ninth best player in the draft. And nobody thought that he was going to. Go, I don't know. I didn't see him within twenty spots of this on on a mock. Um, so, you know, he's the slot is probably at least double what he was in line for. Uh, if he had if he had waited until, or if they if somebody had waited on him until the thirties or forties or even later, if they pay him slot, he'll be the first college football player to make more than their coach. He will be making four point nine million dollars next year. Okay, I'm root- I'm rooting for that. That's a great piece of trivia. I mean, it could be untrue back in like the 1800s when. Oh, uh, that's true. But 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 at least in the modern era, <laughs> there has not been a college football player making more than their highly paid coach. Is there a college football angle to this, or does this impact the way you you look at him as a? I mean, obviously, there's going to be no talk about his his NFL draft prospects or what position he might play in the pros or anything like that. But just from a, a 2018 season standpoint, does this change the way uh, you think he's going to play or the way he's going to get covered? Well, definitely, because now there's this there's this sort of almost like a little cloud hanging over him where you you want him to succeed in football, but it's also no longer the most important thing for him. You want him to, you know, be able to take advantage of that baseball talent. And Oklahoma is a type of team that's always going to be exciting. They're definitely going to score a lot of points with or without Kyler Murray at quarterback. Last year, they made the college football playoff with Baker Mayfield, who went on to be the number one pick in the NFL draft. So somehow they had quarterbacks taken in the top 10 of two different sports drafts which is amazing i but, know i know you said last night they need to run trey young out there for a series just to, yeah they they need to make trey young a quarterback so they can have quarterbacks taken in the top 10 of all three sports drafts but 
Yeah, but, I mean, Kyler, when you did watch him on the field, he was so he's so dynamic. He's so fast. He, um, he hasn't really had a chance to throw against any teams that are good yet. He came in and mop up duty against teams like Tulane and UTEP and Kansas, which is Kansas is very, very bad. <laughs> um, so uh, we, we haven't gotten to see him really run the full offense yet, but every time he, he came out, it was just dynamite. The fact that there was always going to be this question of, of whether he was going to do baseball or football. And it's shifted from the dynamic of him having this decision to make to, oh my God, why did he make that decision that he did? I hope it works out for him. Because now he's made the decision where he is going to be a pro baseball player someday. But for now, he's going to risk his body for free with no way of making money off of it. And it's ludicrous and I fear for him. And I've gone from being excited to watch him every snap to being like, get out of bounds, Kyler. Get out of bounds. Well, I mean, they don't really play defense in the Big 12 anyway, right? Yeah, he can. He'll still get to play against Kansas. How how dangerous is Big Twelve football? Really? <laughs> um, the, the thing is, um, even bad football players can hurt you. That's that's a problem. Um, but yeah, the good thing is Big Twelve defenses are very bad, and he will likely just get to go have fun and do nice things and score a lot of touchdowns, and then happily go on with his multimillionaire life. That's the most likely scenario and the one that I'm hoping for and will spend every Oklahoma game thinking about. I I mean, this is obviously the story of the draft so far. And if, you know, if Jordan Akins or Hayden Hurst or uh, Patrick Mahomes turns out to be any anything in the in the NFL, maybe we'll switch this this conversation around and, and look at it from the other side. But I thought then, we were going to I thought I, we were going to follow this up with a long discussion of uh, Donovan Tate. Uh, playing at Arizona, oh, former, for, former number three overall MLB draft pick, now sophomore quarterback at Arizona. I I had totally forgotten about Donovan Tate. Okay, well I I wish you brought this up. Ben's been waiting on the uh, been waiting for a call <laughs> for like ten minutes now. So I've I've got it. Next time, next time you come on, bring up Donovan Tate sooner so we can talk. About I, I think we can. Donovan Tate's not that important. We can move on. Thanks for having me. Okay, go away. <laughs> Thanks again to Roger. We're going to take a quick moment of silence to offer a word of prayer for Kyler Murray's health and then come right back with Ben Lindbergh, our closer. So my final guest today is a man who I'm not even going to try to get to talk about the draft because he steadfastly refuses at every turn. Instead, we're going to talk about actual baseball. Ben Lindbergh, how you doing? (laughs) I'm doing well. It's better for all involved that someone other than me talk about the draft, namely you. So (laughs) I think that's the best way to go. So what we're going to talk about instead is uh, the weird weekend the Phillies just had. They scored Mm -hmm. one run over the course of three games, courtesy of a Jake Arrieta home run, which damn, like (laughs) that's that's worse than I think that's worse than getting shut out. Yeah. and then Jake Area went off and uh, was talking about the Phillies having the worst shifts uh, in baseball and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, talking about accountability. And it was very and this was controversial at the time because on one hand, it looked like he was throwing his younger players uh, or his younger teammates under the bus and, you know, talking it, perhaps even the analytics department and so forth. And that's not really how I read that whole situation because you know Gabe Kapler was asked about it and said, you know, this is a veteran, essentially this is a veteran, uh, you know, talking about how we need to play better. And that's, mm-hmm. you know, the reason we brought him on is, 
I mean, obviously he's a great pitcher, but one of the reasons the Phillies brought him on is he, and I know you're going to love it when I say this, but he knows, you know, knows what it takes to win and has that experience, been there, done that. He's the kind of guy you bring on uh, to sort of provide leadership for a, a, a team with a ton of talent, but very little uh, experience in a pennant race or, or pressure. You know, this, this whole thing just didn't seem like it was for our benefit. It seemed like it was aimed at his teammates and maybe the the front office and coaching staff. Yeah, this is that vaunted Jake Arrieta leadership that we've been hearing about. This was part of Scott Boris's pitch to teams this offseason, I think, which not many teams responded to, but the Phillies ultimately did. And I think there are different leadership styles that can work in any sphere of life or even within a baseball clubhouse. This is not the style of leadership that I would have or that I personally would respond to that well, I don't think, in that he's calling out specific players by name, Scott Kingery, for example, mm-hmm. for not playing, uh, not making a certain play, even though he is playing out of position and was shifted and he's a young guy. So that's a lot to ask of someone. But this is his style. He's blunt. And you're right. He has been there and he's won awards and he's been in the playoffs and he's come up big. And this is part of it that he's the veteran guy in this clubhouse. And I don't think that I mean, there might be some Phillies who are quietly stewing about this, but I'm sure there are others who are saying, yeah, we need this kind of kick in the pants because it has been a rough stretch for the Phillies. And uh, you you bring up that you wouldn't respond to this style of leadership. I wouldn't either. And like the more I try to think about it's so it's useful, I think, a lot of the time to think about a major league baseball clubhouse as a workplace. When we're talking about, I think, a lot of social issues, labor issues, um, you know, issues, you know, we talk about hazing, stuff like that, uh, that in, in areas in which the game is evolving and you think about the think about it as a workplace, but you see situations like this where, you know, I see exactly what it feels pretty obvious what Ariad is doing. It feels like this, you know, this sort of thing happens all the time. It, it works a lot of the time, mm-hmm. but this is not the style of, of leadership <laughs> or, or co-workerness that I would respond to. And it's yes. just one of those moments where you feel like, man, these, like, these are completely different people from, from the people <laughs> that I know. Yeah, this is not how Sean Fennessy sounds on our weekly Ringer conference call, (laughs) but I think neither you nor I, I mean, we're just not wired like Major League Baseball players, which is one of the many reasons why we are not Major League Baseball players. But I think this sort of motivational style works. And it's not like Arietta didn't have a point. This was a horseshit series, as he said, in every way. And he was calling out the shifting specifically. We don't have a perfect measure of the efficacy of team shifts, I don't think, but the one we do have from Baseball Info Solutions says that the Phillies have indeed been by far the worst team in terms of shifting results this year. And that doesn't include outfield shifts. It may not really measure comprehensively all of the effects that can come from a shift, but I think based on what we do know, it seems like shifts have been backfiring for the Phillies more often than for most teams this year. And when Arietta said, you know, copy the best, just copy other teams it's working for, maybe he's talking about the Cubs, who, of course, had some incredible defensive teams while Arietta was in Chicago and haven't actually shifted all that much, at least as Baseball Info Solutions measures shifts. I mean, part of part of the problem is that uh, Kingery is not a shortstop. Right. And the just the the defensive downgrade from Chris Bryant and Addison Russell on the left side of the infield to Michael Franco to and Scott Kingery, at least until um 
until JP Crawford comes back is gigantic. Yeah. Uh, and so that's not helping. But like you said, that there's something too. You know, Ariette is on to something, and and Ben Harris, my former uh, mm-hmm. uh, Crash Bernali, uh confrere now of the Athletic, wrote a pretty in depth piece laying out all the the numbers, which, like you said, aren't perfect, but they're they're the best we have right now. And it says, you know, he's right that the Phillies are not very good at this right now. And, and when you're a, a veteran, you know, you're Arietta, you're coming from the Cubs, and you won a World Series. I mean, you have to be prepared for some growing pains behind you. I think when you're mm-hmm. coming to this team, there weren't that many teams that were lining up to give Jake Arietta big long term contracts this past winter, and so he ended up signing with the Phillies. And I think it made sense for him and for them. Not only financially, but in that you look ahead a year or two and you say, oh, this team is on the way up and they will be winners at some point during this contract. But I think it was always expected that there would be some rough stretches this season because they really are so young. Their hitters are the youngest in the major leagues on average this year, and their pitchers, even with Arietta, are the second youngest. So usually things aren't going to go that smoothly when that's the case. Yeah, and I think if you asked Arietta, he would admit all that like this isn't him expecting there not to be growing pains this is him trying to help the team get past Mm -hmm. uh, those growing pains or at least like create a little bit of urgency to to do that because they're in a position where where they could win this year um and one part of that is i've i've been very impressed with the job that and i can't believe i'm saying this given how much fun (laughs) we made of him uh or how much we made fun of him early in the season how skeptical i was of the hire when it happened but i think gabe kapler is evolving very impressively as a rookie manager and very Mm -hmm. quickly and that i mean that to me was always going to be the big the big stepping stone with him um or this big stumbling block as i mix my metaphors all over the place (laughs) um was how Gabe Kapler could react to plan A going wrong. And I think he's, this is just another example of, of he's finding his footing as a, as a manager. And, you know, I think if we're going to mock him as it is, as it was and remains so easy to do uh, early in the season, I think he, you know, he deserves a little bit of credit from, uh, from us. Yeah. You can almost break the Philly season into three sections. It's that initial freak out in the first week or so of the season when everyone was piling on Kapler and he had the suspect bullpen decisions and people were just acclimating, I think, to what Gabe Kapler is like as a major league manager. And everything died down and settled down and was very quiet for a while because the Phillies were winning and everything was going fine. And lo and behold, no one was really complaining about Gabe Kapler during that stretch and you weren't really hearing anonymous sniping anymore. And then, of course, suddenly the Phillies have gone into a nosedive and now there are questions again. And that's kind of the way it always is. I think the the discourse around the team follows the on-field results to a certain extent. And I think Kepler, I mean, he seemed as if he would be really overactive early on, but in a lot of ways, he's not at all. He kind of stays out of the way. He doesn't really pinch hit and pinch run and, you know, bunt with position players and hit and run and all these ways that managers try to inject themselves into the action. He doesn't really do that. And I think that's probably because sabermetrically speaking, it's usually the sound decision not to do those things. But you're right. I don't think that he has really attracted that attention lately. And the Phillies have played fine with him. And it doesn't seem as if the team is really bridling at his management style. So I want to end with this. Go back to just really drilling down to the essential, is the shift working? Is Arietta happy with it? And this is a, there's been some research 
by, uh, among other people, our friend Russell Carlton, former podcast guest, on how the shift is more effective the the more comfortable the pitcher is with it. Because sometimes you know you see walk rates go up, for instance, uh, when the um, when the team shifts behind a, a pitcher. And Ben talked about this in his article as well. You've got you are unique among the Ringers baseball staff in that you have actually had to get actual baseball players to buy into an unorthodox defensive tactics uh, as detailed in your book. The only rule is it has to work our wild experiment, building a new kind of baseball team, which you and Sam Miller wrote uh, some years ago. So what insight do you have in getting somebody, you know, maybe you don't have insight into getting somebody like Jake Arietta uh, to, to buy into this, but you know, what can you tell me about that? that process. Yeah, I think it was considerably easier at the low levels of the independent leagues where you didn't have anyone with Jake Arrieta's resume to say, this is not how you do it. This is not how I've done it in the past. Guys at that age are more receptive to things. And I think that applies to a certain extent to the Phillies just because it is such a young team and lots of rookies. But I think you'd try to make it seem fun and like an adventure and almost like a a team morale building exercise where you say, we're going to try this together and we'll see how it goes. And I think we got a little lucky in that some of the first times we did it, it worked out fine and guys got behind it and really got into the spirit of things. But I saw a Kapler quote where he said, you know, if that's true, if guys are pitching differently when you have the shift on and they're walking people and that's making the shift backfire, then you just talk to them and you say, well, don't pitch differently when the shift is on. We don't want you to. That feels easier said than done. Right, exactly. And I think that that's what Russell's shown. I'm not sold on the idea that the shift is actually a a net negative. I kind of don't think it is. I think teams are doing it for a reason, but I think Russell did show good evidence that pitchers do seem to walk more hitters when the shift is on, and it could be because of a lack of comfort. And if that's still the case now, after several seasons of the shift being everywhere, then I think that probably is a more complicated conversation than just sitting them down and saying, hey, don't do that. <laughs> I think it it might be a little harder to control than that. But the Phillies pitching obviously has not been their problem on the whole. They've been really effective. I think they're third in the majors in pitching war right now. So the problem really lately for them has been hitting. And to put it in Kaplerese, I saw a Kapler quote about their recent offensive struggles. He said, there's no disputing that recently the performance at the plate has not been optimal, <laughs> which is a, a, a very man. charitable I, way <laughs> to express it. I hope he manages in the big leagues for 30 years. This yeah, is not optimal. In the past two weeks, the Phillies have actually been the worst hitting team in the majors. They're hitting 210, 270, 327 over that span. That's a 62 weighted runs created plus where 100 is average. They have the highest strikeout rate over that span without a lot of power or patience. And partially they're just shorthanded right now. They're without mm-hmm. Reese Hoskins and JP Crawford. Not that those guys were hitting lately. Yeah, I was going to say Hoskins was not. <laughs> yeah. Part of the problem was that Hoskins was has just been terrible uh, yeah. you know, after the first couple of weeks of the season. Yeah. Even before he broke his face. <laughs> right. So. so they're having to bring up Dylan Cousins and Mitch Walding and they're having to play Nick Williams and Aaron Altair both every day instead of platooning them. And so they're a little stretched right now. And I think it's just that they're young. 
There was some research at Fangraphs on Tuesday by Stephen Loftus, and he was saying that really if you go back the past 15 or 20 years, the only team that has started as well as the Phillies and been as young as the Phillies is the 2008 Rays, who of course ended up losing to the World Series winning Phillies. And I think that it's very rare for a team this young to be this good. And Stephen showed that if you look at the history of recent teams that have started this well, the ones that are young tend to tail off more steeply than the ones that are older. And I don't think that's just because they're young and inexperienced. It, it might be. Maybe they just run out of gas. But I think it's probably that they're probably overachieving in the first place just to get that good because it's hard to be this young and this good. And if you look back at the preseason projections, the Fangraphs projections had the Phillies slated for 77 wins and a 10% playoff odds. And now I think they're slated for 80 wins and a 14% playoff odds, something like that. But they've obviously played a bit over their heads and really even better than most people who were picking them as the dark horse and the surprise team expected. So if you zoom out and look at the season as a whole, I think it looks pretty good. All right. Well, we will zoom out and probably check back in. They've got a brutal month yes, of June. So yes, they do. we're we're gonna see how they fare with like the worst team they play the entire month is the Rockies. Yeah. Uh, and they get three games against them at home. So good luck. And <laughs> we'll see how far above five hundred they are. Uh I mean, this is gonna be the make or break month. And once that's done, we're gonna I always do this. I always preview these things that I say we're gonna talk about again and may or may not ever. So <laughs> or well, you know, as many things as I promise but don't actually intend to deliver on, I do promise that you will be back on the pod next week. So Yes. I'll yes, this has been a, a very Michael Bauman episode with the draft and the Phillies. So I'm just I'm happy to intrude on your area of expertise for 15 minutes. That'll do it for this week's edition of the Ringer MLB show on today, Tuesday, June 5th, or in other words, seven days after Ben Dietrich's expose of the Brian Colangelo-connected burner accounts that have been trash-talking Joel Embiid and other Sixers players. And yet, Brian Colangelo remains the general manager of the Sixers, so... Yeah, I hope that changes before next week's episode. But until then, thanks to Zach Cram, Roger Sherman, and Ben Lindbergh for coming on. Thanks to Clayton Kershaw, Casey Mize, Kyler Murray, Jake Arietta, and Gabe Kapler for providing fodder for conversation. Thanks to producer Jim Cunningham for stitching all this together. And thank you for listening. We'll see you next time.